I'm Silicon Boone and I'm an artist who I just I write songs really and I've been writing songs my entire life since I was very young and and song songwriting for me or just songs not even if I wrote them but good songs for me have always been like kind of like a like oxygen it's it's the way that I find life you know it's the way that just navigate the world like even when I was really young and in like my late teens or early 20s I would write songs based off of experiences that I had or whatever. And I thought this was normal. Like I didn't, because I grew up so secluded socially. I had a lot of siblings, but we were all very secluded, which I'll get to in a second. I thought it was normal. And it took me a long time to realize that actually it's not quite, most people don't do that. And, you know, it, I was way into my thirties before I even thought I might have something that I could offer people in that way, where, where I first began to have some confidence with it. And then I decided to make a space record, which we can talk about. And I approached this record with immense passion, as much passion as I've ever had in my life about anything. And even as I say that I can feel it because I felt like I was doing something that needed to be done and should be done and something I believed in. And so I poured everything I had into it, including financially, I poured everything that I could that my wife allowed me to pour into it. And, and I'm very happy with the product, but I'm suppose that's why we're talking. Now I can take <laughs> back history of, of myself. If you want to hear some of that, like the Amish background and all that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So you want to ask me a question? Or let me just start. We'll just start kind of, I mean, that's important to your upbringing and like, so one of the things actually, I will say what I thought was interesting, I found you somehow that people do on Spotify one day. And so I have a tendency, if I like the artist, I'll read their bio. Sometimes, you know, there's like four words in there. Sometimes, you know, there's like a full description and, and yours kind of caught me off guard because, you know, here here you are, like you have this phenomenal kind of kind of rusty um, Americana voice and your songs, especially Found You, which is your most popular, is just very powerful. And it kind of caught me off guard a little bit and reading this and it's ex Amish and you're talking about all these other things about your upbringing. And, I, and then so I clicked your link, went to your web, you know, your emails there and I figured I'd give it a shot because I figured you'd have a pretty cool story of having this super interesting upbringing to where you are now and and how that kind of translates into your music and what else that you've done kind of surrounding that. So yeah, if you want to just talk about your upbringing and everything like that, that'd be awesome. I will. And then just feel free to interject or ask a question or interrupt me even if, <laughs> if you think there's something we should. So yeah, I was born what's called old order Amish, which is, you know, in any religion, there's, there's going to be a swath of different expressions. Well, within the Amish, there are more modern Amish, and then there are more conservative Amish, and the old order are the most conservative branch. And so I grew up on the far conservative side, or, or I didn't say, I, I didn't grow all the way up, but started growing up there, and my parents left when I was in mid-childhood, actually right as I was starting first grade, they left. And But I have very, very vivid memories of being a, an Amish boy. I was a third born of six children. And I didn't learn English until after we left um, the Amish. So I learned English while I was in public school, which was very traumatic, actually. I, it was kind of a way to transfer, but my parents didn't know any better. So they, they just didn't know. 
<laughs> that maybe I needed a more gentler transit because <laughs> I, I went from uh, an Amish world into a public school setting, which was just stark and scary and, and wild because I couldn't speak English, which of course, you know, as a, as a kid, you learn a language pretty quick, but I was learning much more than a language. I was also learning a new way of thinking and seeing the world. So it was, it was quite the contrast. But yeah, we left when I was six and a half, uh, right around Christmas time. And, you know, my parents had religious reasons for leaving. And so a lot of, a lot of the religious emphasis remained in the home, which included for the rest of my childhood and teen years, uh, no contemporary music. You know, they felt that that was the devil's music which may sound odd to you, but if you're, if you're from a religious tradition, especially a conservative one, it's not uncommon. It's an us versus them often, or they over there and we're over here kind of thing. And certainly the Amish are very much that way. Now they're kind people and they're humble people and they're extremely honest. Like the vast majority of the Amish are nonviolent. Well, they're just never violent. They're anti-war. And they're extremely honest. They're not going to cheat you. They're not going to lie to you. So there's a lot of good, but then there's also some negative. And that is in, in the Amish, there's a strong patriarchy. The men make all the decisions and the women have their world where they do rule, but it's a much smaller world. You know, their sphere is very small. And, but w within the Amish, they have a very stark us versus them kind of mentality. And they'll call it the world, the Welt in the Pennsylvania Dutch is what it is, the Welt. And it's basically the world is everybody else out there. And then we are the chosen. And so growing up, we didn't entirely forsake that way of thinking. So, you know, we, we had our own way of secluding ourselves. And I don't think it was ever intentional, but it was part of that was cultural. And then we moved to Eastern Kentucky in the mountains, literally in the mountains, where the closest neighbor was a mile away. And so, which was in some ways pretty awesome because like we had five boys in our family and only one girl, the kids, right? <laughs> and so we could just go outside in our underwear anytime we wanted to and run around and just be wild. And we were, we were just, and we were all close together. We're stacked like within a year and a half to two years apart in terms of birth order. And we were crazy and we grew up barefoot in the hills and had a lot of fun, but we're also very different. So when we did interact with people at, at public school or when we would go to church, we would definitely stand out, you know, and, but in terms of music, my parents were given a piano when I was 11 hmm. and we had no TV. I mean, we had a TV box, but we had nothing coming in on it. Right. <laughs> So the only way to watch, the only way that thing would light up is if we would rent a VCR, which was heavily regulated as well. You know, no rated R, nothing like that. And, and we didn't go to the video store very often. I mean, like not just almost never. So we were basically had no TV. We did have a radio, but we weren't allowed to listen to anything except NPR, which was ironically kind of a, in some ways more of a, and access to the wider world than, than what just pop radio would have been. Uh, because I listened to a lot of NPR growing up. And, but anyway, when I was 11, my parents were given a piano and it was a very old piano. And because we had no uh, way to entertain ourselves besides playing outside, I started playing piano. 
And I loved the way it made me feel. So I started, just started writing music. You know, at first I just wrote melodies. I learned what chords were, kind of figured out. I remember when I started figuring out how melodies would play with chords and I was like, oh, wow. Are you teaching yourself how to play the piano? Basically. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have anybody around. But, you know, I remember when 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 the three shaped chords on the left hand, when I realized what those were. I don't know if you know music at all. I don't even know the language for it right now. But you know, if you hit the three, the three notes, the one, the, the one, the three and the five. Right. Mm-hmm. To, make, to make a certain sound. And then. But anyway, I started writing melodies and then it wasn't until I was probably 16. I started messing with lyrics. And because I had such a a tight exposure to music, like very, very contracted exposure. So it was like church hymns, which aren't bad lyrically. A lot of them are actually fairly sophisticated lyrically in terms of their rhyme scheme and their poetry. But outside of that, the only other music I had any genuine access to was the Thistle and Shamrock, which was on NPR, which is old Celtic and Irish Celtic music, which is actually pretty sophisticated music as well, but it's old, right? And so initially my lyrics were very romantic and, and probably a little bit cliche. I mean, I had no Bob Dylan in my head. I had no reason. <laughs> we'll get back to the music in a second, but I am curious. So your parents left and y'all moved to Eastern Kentucky and it's this whole new world that you all are trying to figure out how to, to navigate essentially. What was expected when you left high school and were kind of thrust out into the world? Like, was it expected that you go to college or get a job? Because like, you know, y'all, your family has, I mean, you're essentially like immigrants. Actually, I appreciate you using that. That's very true because I will tell you this. So as an aside, when I was, okay, this is a crazy story, but it's a true one. So when my brother, my older brother, David, it was I, I used to think it was fifth grade, but then I talked to mom. I think it was not seventh grade. When he was in seventh grade. He, he drew a penis on his homework. <laughs> just like boys, right? But my mom was just, just absolutely scandalized. <laughs> and she sent David and then my older brother Isaac off to a boarding school, a Baptist boarding school, because she thought she was losing David to the devil hmm. and she thought a boarding school would fix this problem and then they mom and dad they had a lot of really great characteristics about them and one was mom and dad despite being very strict religious upbringing never forced us to think a certain way they, they let us ask questions you know? probably because they had grown up asking questions themselves but anyway, mom and dad left, let me decide whether I wanted to go to this boarding school. So I went to this boarding school at the age of 14 and quit in for two years. It was in deep eastern Kentucky, but it had people from all over the world, literally people from all over the world, uh, Muslim and Asian and South American and Ethiopian. And uh, anyway, after two years, I basically got this incredible exposure to to the world in a full sense, not like pop music world, but in, in, in I got this exposure to the broader world. And so what was expected of me leaving the home, I don't know that I had tremendous expectations. Mom and dad would have supported me if I'd have chosen just to get a job or 
and I did choose to go, though they had an opinion about what kind of college I'd go to. But, but yeah, they supported me either way. That There weren't really any expectations. Um, mom and dad's, both of their, uh, the extent of their education is eighth grade, but neither one of them are uncurious people. You know, they, they read and they, they have a natural curiosity. So it's not, it's not like they, if you met them, you would never know. Oh. So what did you study in college then? And like, what was your intention for what you wanted to do at that moment in time being, you know, 18 to, to 22? So, okay, I was a sophomore in high school. I had this amazing thing that changed my life. We had to write, and I didn't know anything about writing. I never I dabbled in visual art, but I'd never done any writing. And I went to college and I, and I majored in English. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. So you've been having trouble hearing me this whole time? No. So I got that part. I was just about to add. I got all the way up until I think you added like a note at the end. Could be yeah. wrong. But you were talking about your teacher. And then you said, yeah, you majored in English. And then. Because I um, love. Yeah. And I had no plans. So I graduated and I worked construction and I literally swung the hammer. Working for like $9 an hour. <laughs> Love it. And so what was your, did you have any intentions of kind of post that of how to mesh the two or, you know, what your life was going to look like, or was it more of a, we'll take every day as it comes and, and figure it out from there? Not really, but during that time, well, no, I will say I got fired from a job. It's the only job I've ever been fired from, which was absurd because I'm such a hard worker and I'm an honest person. Listen to the, listen to this. Now, this is just, this has nothing to do with anything, but it's so interesting. <laughs> I worked for this company, a construction company, this commercial construction that this, this guy I barely knew was like, hey, come work with me. I've got this. I'm a, I'm a foreman at this construction company. So I go work. Well, he cheats on the hours. Like he starts cheating on the hours. He starts paying us both me and him more than we were supposed to be getting. Right. And I was like, I wasn't ready to throw him under the bus, but I felt bad about it. Well, he doesn't last no more than a couple of months, maybe three months. He quits and goes somewhere else and makes way more money. He was very intelligent, like he's a super intelligent guy and driven. I call up the boss as soon as he's gone and I say, hey, I owe you some money. This is how much I owe you. <laughs> I get figures, you know, and the guy was like, what? Because this was like, anyway, it was construction, but it was like, you know, the guys were making pedophile jokes. It was like rough. It was rough yeah. stuff, right? And so like I pay him his money back. And then half a year later, I go into his office and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm working hard out here and I'm pretty good at what I do. You know, some guys are better than me, but I'm pretty good. But I, and I said, I'm educated and I'm intelligent and I bet I could do way better in your office. Do you have anything in your office where I could work and use my brain and not just my body? And he was like, sure, come back tomorrow and I'll, <laughs> I'll tell, you, tell you what I have for you. I come back in the morning and he fires me. And he <laughs> loves firing me. He uses the word terminated and he like slides, he slides his like closed envelope with my check across the desk as he says it and grins at me. He's like, you're terminated. And I'm thinking this guy fired me who was honest with him and paid him money back. Right? <laughs> Joker does that. <laughs> anyway, I walked out of there like feeling happy, which meant that I wasn't supposed to be doing that. And I like, I was overjoyed actually. And I started working for myself. And I started just painting, being a painting contractor and started, and I, and I enjoyed that. But during that time, I read Carl Sagan and, and that 
I think might be more relevant for the music that I've made is that I read Carl Sagan. I would have been early 20s. And I don't, do you know anything about Carl Sagan? I know the name, but I don't really know, know okay. much. Astronomer who died of cancer too early. I think he was in his 50s or early 60s when he passed away. He was an atheist astronomer with a incredibly, like incredible gift for poetic expression. And he had a brilliant vision for humanity as a whole. Uh, when you read Sagan, he, he feels religious in some ways, even though he's an atheist because of, of how optimistic and how persuasive he is with his language. Like I can read Nietzsche and be like, okay, Nietzsche feels like an atheist. Like, <laughs> are you familiar with Nietzsche at all? Yeah. A little bit. Okay. So when I read Nietzsche, he feels like an atheist, which maybe you're an atheist and I'm not trying to judge or anything like that. I don't care about that. But one, but when I would read Sagan, I'd be like, ah, he doesn't feel like an atheist at all, even though he was right. So the reason I point that out is because, you know, with, with my background, I'd been taught to steer clear of atheists at the time, early 20s, you know. But once I started reading Sagan, I couldn't stop. And he was, he was so influential for me that he, he changed the way I see the world. Like his outlook on the world as an early, in, in my early 20s, effective in changing the way that I thought or approached my life. So from that, I started writing songs about space, you know, from Sagan. Now, I kept writing all sorts of other songs, but eventually coming to the record, you know, I'm in my mid-30s. I'm beginning to actually think, or I'm in mid to late 30s, and I'm beginning to actually think, you know, I could, I could make a record, and, and people might actually like my music, and so... I was like, I'm going to make a space record. And I talked to a couple of friends and they were like super encouraging. And they were like, we'll play on it. We'll help you with it. And so I made, I just made the decision. I talked to my wife and talked to a couple of friends and I was like, I want to do this. And then I made, I made the reaches, which is the, you know, that has the song found you on it. That has, has done exceptional well, considering that I'm not, you know, I'm nobody. <laughs> nobody well, I mean, somebody really. yeah right but if you if you make a record and you release it into the world you know the chances of it doing anything at all is is almost nothing unless unless you have a big marketing like plan behind you which i didn't have so but it's done okay i mean the reaches have done all right yeah what's the process like then from you know, you're an unsigned artist, you're having friends come on and they're playing other instruments or singing vocals and doing all this other stuff to, to help you build it. Like, do you have all the equipment? Do you have to rent studio space? How did it all work? Oh yeah, so that's great. That's a great question. Well, fortunately I have both. I have access to my brother leads worship at a church that has a studio and, and their sound guys, like he flies around the nation setting up studio equipment and he's like the best and he's a genius like he's like the best and uh, like most geniuses a little bit eccentric but once you get to, to know him you love him and he so they let me use that because of my connections they let me use that studio and then also i've just accumulated some stuff myself which you can't see me right now but i'm speaking into a mic and you know i have an interface here apollo 8 interface and I've been able to collect some gear over, over the years. Not that I know how to use it very well. But I have it <laughs> and so we actually ended up using some of my own studio space as well. Like for all the vocals and the acoustic guitars, we used my studio space. Okay. And how long did it take you to complete 
the album and put it out? Well, because I work, which I don't want to talk about like my occupation that much, but because I work full time and I have a business and have children, I couldn't just knock this thing out. I couldn't take off work and just go do it. So it took us from the time we recorded the first song to the time we released, we're looking at about two years, about two years. But what was amazing is the lead producer, his name is John Class. He was from Anderson, Indiana, which is a suburb, I think, of Indianapolis or something like that, or it's close to. We've all like, okay, so the band and I have always been good friends. So like my brother, Glenn, he's in the band. And then the drummer, Matt and all, he and I have been close for years. And then Patrick Schaffner, who played the bass, he and I have been close for years. So the lead producer, John Class, was the only one that we didn't know. But as fortune would have it, we like, we're all cut from the same cloth and we're now lifelong friends. In fact, he was just up a couple of weeks ago. We hung out, drank a lot of beers one evening <laughs> and did a show together. But like, yeah, great friendship has come out of making the record. And what made you feel so passionately, so from reading Carl Sagan and kind of taking in all of that information that you had to then create something from what you took away from his words? Well, I don't know that I even know how to articulate other than what's in the record. Like, so, okay. When... Well, I try. I just try to do my best here, and it's not going to. It's not going to do justice to to Sagan. I mean, Sagan has had tremendous influence on a lot of people, not just me. Sagan had a rare gift of getting you to see and believe in in a beautiful potential, right? So that's why I say that he feels religious, and I don't mean that in a critical way towards atheists. So I have no problem with atheists, and I've friends, deep friends who are atheists. And I listen to a lot of podcasters who are atheists, right? So I have no issues with, with that. I don't even, make, even draw personal lines with it. But I don't generally find them inspiring in a, in a hopeful, like almost like a religious hopeful way that I found Sagan to be, right? Now, I don't know why that's the case because Sagan himself wasn't trying to be that way. But he felt like a prophet. I mean, that's all I can say is like the dude felt like a prophet, right? He felt like he there was more going on with the things he was saying than just observation. He felt like he was calling humanity to a better place, to a new place, to a higher place, right? That's why it felt religious to me. And so because of that, he's incredibly inspirational. So if you read or listen to him, you'll see what I mean that his capacity to inspire you to want to do better, to live a better life, to see humanity as greater potential than what you might have thought of yesterday. So he has all those things going with him. So when I encountered him with that and combined it with space, um, I started like just in my own heart dreaming like, wow, it's possible that if we don't blow ourselves up with the bomb or in recent cases, kill ourselves with a pandemic, we might we will very likely end up in space, you know, end up out there somewhere that our descendants will like a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now. And what else is out there? Like, are there other life forms out there, which I assume there are, and is there intelligent life out there? And I assume there is like, 
and is it in the galaxy? Because you know we we can't traverse from this galaxy to another galaxy without discovering some insane quantum mechanical way of doing it. I don't know because because there's there's not enough time to get over there. But I mean, even at the speed of light, we couldn't get there in how many billions of years. But we can definitely go across our own galaxy in in the span of so many billions of years. And so it's possible that our descendants, if we don't kill ourselves, will end up going across the galaxy. I don't know. But these were all things that were on the tongue of Sagan. And I thought they were grandiose and I loved it. And so I found it inspiring. And I felt that at least as much as I could, I wanted to write a record or produce a record that paid homage to this grand view of what human potential is. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah, I'd say you did a fabulous job. I love the record. And yeah, I think each song is, is different and kind of encompasses, you know, a different theme and topic, which is, I'm assuming that's how you, you built it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I, wanted, I wanted each song to be about humanity as well, right? So I didn't want it just to be about space. So I didn't just write a song about a planet. I wrote a song about like Mars, like a planet that reflects human nature which is violent, violent, uh, violent human nature and, and war and as well as the potential for terraforming, you know, planting and producing vegetation and that sort of thing. And so, so when, yeah, those themes are in that song Mars, right? Yeah. Okay. And when you're, when you're writing, you know, your songs, are you kind of focused on writing one at a time and you kind of go through and you have some lyrics and then you kind of figure out what the theme of it is and what the topic will be or do you know you get flooded all at once or do you write in bits and pieces i probably write mostly in bits and pieces sometimes i'm fortunate enough to to get a song in in a very very like quick or fast way found you is one of those right <laughs> those songs that come to you really fast bruce springsteen i remember he said he wrote dancing in the dark in like 5 minutes and i've heard I've heard other artists talk about those moments, right? Where it's like, you like almost like some something out there is telling you is just pouring into you, right? And it's hard to explain until you have it because it really feels that way. Like, it really feels like I'm channeling something from outside of me, and it's just coming through me. And I happen to be the lucky, you know, the conduit, the lucky conduit for this for this moment. So, found you felt that way, right? And I did write it very quickly. But these other songs, no, they took a while. Interesting. That's what, have you ever heard of Elizabeth Gilbert? I don't think so. Maybe, maybe. She's, she's an author. And so she, one of her popular books is called Big Magic. And she talks about one of the points actually just, you know, reference about you being a vessel. And, you know, sometimes it's about right time, right place. She mentions there's a story of this woman and she had this very exact idea for a book. You know, these characters were from X place and they were going to go to Brazil and, and do something. They were spies. And so she decided to kind of put it on hold. She had other things going on in her life. And she happens to meet this woman on know, vacation or something. And this woman was also an author. And she told her about this idea that she had for a book. And it was literally the same thing, except maybe like one or two minor things were tweaked as this other woman's idea that she had, you know, years before for a book. And it, like, I always find that crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that might just be coincidence or there might be evidence that there's something more out there. Who knows? But that's a crazy story for sure. <laughs> that is. So do you have plans for creating another album or is it? Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the process of 
writing. So the, the, the holdup for me right now is time and money. Honestly, music doesn't pay unless you're really big. And, and then also I, my, my life is I'm, I'm middle-aged and I have little kids and I have a business and my life is ex- incredibly full, but no, I've got, I'm working on a, on a record that I think I'm going to call Western highway. And it's going to basically deal with like 19th century American expansion westward, both some of like the mythology. Cause I love mythology. And when I say mythology, I don't mean like, I mean, myth mythos, like what is it that drives a group of people towards something? It's a mythology, right? It's a, it's a common story. So I, I, I really appreciate some of the mythology that drove America westward, but then there's also a lot of songs that deal honestly with, with the excesses and critique, you know, critique some of the, ex- well, there, there are tons of excesses. So I like, I have a song for ja- Sacagawea that that you know it's funny like the song i have for sac uh sacajuia i mean i don't know how many people will love it or not because it's more folk oriented but which i actually prefer folk music over anything else but like i was watching a ken burns film like so here's an example i told you i started off by saying that i process life with music right so i was watching you know ken burns is the documentary guy mm-hmm Okay, yeah. So I was watching Ken Burns. It's about the West. I don't know. It's like a six-part documentary or something. And this is years ago. And my wife and I were watching it. And he starts telling the story of Sacagawea. And I'm not a I'm not a crier. Like I I feel and I'm emotional. And especially when I'm writing, I'm very emotional. But I don't cry a lot. So even when I'm watching films, I'll feel a lot. But I don't cry. Like I don't. I don't. My my eyes don't get wet. So. I'm just listening to his story on Sacagawea and I start crying. I'm like, this is awful. Like, like the, the misfortune, it's not even misfortune, the, the tragedy, the, the, the complete tragedy that her story is, is just insane. Nobody, no human being should, should be met with such tragedy that she was met with and such injustice. And I'm like, oh, I got to write this girl a story. I got to write her a song, you know. And then I finally did. I finally wrote her a song like a year and a half ago or a year ago or whatever. But I sat on that for a long time because I wanted the song to be right. Right. I sat on it and sat on it. I was like, I'm not going to just sit down and force it. I want the song to come to me. I don't want to come to it. So but anyway, I have a song for her. Then I have like all these other songs too. I have a song about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. But that'll be my, I think that'll be my next record. And I've got most of the songs completed. I'm still writing on it. I had one completely written that I completely chucked and I got to rewrite it because it just, <laughs> the band and I played with it, played with it. And then at the end, we were like, this isn't working. So I've got to rewrite that one. <laughs> rewrite the whole thing? Yeah, I think oh, wow. so. It just didn't work. It didn't huh. work. Is it like a, it's not ready? So you'll like maybe keep it later or it's just completely like it doesn't fit? with the rest of the album and, and like what you're trying to say? I don't know. No, it's, 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 it's great. The, the lyrics are great. The lyrics are great. I have no qualms with the lyrics. It just didn't work. It just, <laughs> honestly, we, so we did a show like a month ago. It was an outside show. And we had like 14 or 15 songs ready to go. And every time we'd rehearse and come to that one song, I'd be like, ah, I just don't want to, it's boring right and the band would kind of feel the same way and then finally i was like guys just be honest with me and then you know matt the drummer who's 
doesn't mind being honest. He was like, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just don't think this song is ready. I don't think it works. And I'm like, well, if it's not ready now, it's never going to be ready. I'm just getting rid of it. <laughs> well, free spot for something else. And that's interesting to. Well, I want to still write that song because the yeah. lyrics and concepts are strong. But I need, I obviously need a better melody or a hook or something. I don't know what it was, but it didn't work. And interestingly, the Abraham Lincoln song that felt really odd and out of left field to me ended up working great as a full band, you know. So you just never know. You just never know what you're going to run into, I guess. Is your music more for you or is it for others? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it was certainly more for me younger, right? But now as I'm writing, I'm trying to have more of a thought towards others as well. But there was a time when I would only ever write for me. And I, and I kind of miss those days in some ways, you know, if I'm honest, because it felt very private and genuine and sweet, you know. Were you sharing those songs like you're sharing these now or were those just oh, yeah. kept? OK, no, no, I would share. Them. I've always shared songs with friends. Which I actually think, if, I don't know if, if you have, I don't know how, how many listeners you have, but if there's any artists out there, especially if they're young, they're songwriters, I would say that's one of the most important things you can do is create a group of friends that you love and who love you. And I use the word love, right? I'm not afraid to use that word. People who actually love you. They're not competing with you. They, they like you. Let's, let's use that word too. They don't just love you, they like you, right? And you feel that way towards them and you guys can trade music because what's going to happen is if you're an artist and you've got people that, that love and like you, they're going to be honest with you and they're going to celebrate you when you're, when you're hitting a home run. And then when they celebrate you, you're like, Oh, I hit a home run. Cause you don't know as an artist, you don't know that you hit a home run. Right. You're just like, uh, cause you might write five songs and they more or less to you, they all feel about the same, but, but then you've got some friends who are like, no, man, this one over here, this is incredible, right? But th these three are good, and this one's not that good, right? And you need that. Like, you need that in order to grow because you can't, you can't see, you know, you can't always have eyes to see what you create, you know? Did you seek those people out, or did it kind of happen naturally through environments and circumstances? I would have to say the second. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I think we, you know, certainly you, you make decisions not to run them away, right? I wonder how many times maybe we come across people like that and we don't realize it and we don't invest and they don't invest and then there's a lost potential friendship we could have had, but we're just too busy or, you know, we're too this or too distracted or maybe we're, our feelings get hurt too easy or, you know, there's a number of things that could, could happen. But I've certainly chosen to overlook offenses and i'm glad i did because when you're 20 or 25 you're offending a lot and they're offending you a lot i mean it just comes with the territory. <laughs> yeah. i think there's also yeah go ahead i was gonna say i think there's also like the initial friction you know sometimes when you're when you're meeting people and your schedules don't align like you said you're busy but also just it is harder to make time for someone who maybe you've met once or twice versus something else in life that comes up it's like you don't quite know them enough and have that same type of pull and like want to hang out as like a friend you've had since like middle school or high school no that's true and 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 it might be easier for me to say this because i'm in a small town right so all this happened in a small town mm. so you have a small town unlike the city 
which I lived in the city for five years. I freaking loved it. I thought it was awesome. I miss it. But I, I, I can't see me developing friendships in a city like I was able to in a small town, right? Because in a small town, you don't have a whole lot to do. And so you invest in people and people invest in you. It just comes, right? It's kind of, it's what happens. And so, yeah. So in these, like, I still remember, this is an interesting story of like one of my best friends who I've definitely, in terms of music, has been the most influential on me in terms of friends. His name's Luke. He's from South Africa. He's a white South African. He moved to the States. He immigrated here when he was, when he came here for education. And I was in Peru and I was dating my wife at the time. She was not my wife, obviously, because we were dating. And she had a group of friends over and I'm on the phone talking to her. And she says, here, Luke wants to say something. I never met Luke, right? So Luke jumps on the phone. He's like, Sam. And he uses this like crazy accent. It's just like out of this world. Like, you're a legend, boo. You're a legend. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the first thing he says to me. And I'm like, what? Well, you know, who is this? And he's like, your brother's shown me a couple of your songs and they're so amazing, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, okay. So we start talking like just a minute or two. And I realized right away, I'm like, oh, I really like this guy. Like, I want to be friends with this guy. And so we start like emailing. Like this is back in 2004 or five or something like that. It was a long time ago. And so, you know, you didn't have like texting and all that. And so we like start emailing and trading songs and he and I are still trading songs <laughs> and he's really, he's currently releasing his own little record. Right. And my point is this, that I, I don't know that friendship came to me, but I also saw it when it came, right. I saw this guy was interesting and, and he was, he liked me and he loved me and he was going to be honest with me. And I liked him and it was like, We've been trading songs ever since, and, uh, and we've we've grown we've grown better in the process. Of, like every song I've ever written, I think I send to Luke, and I think he probably does nearly the same, right? So that's a precious thing to have. I'm sure most artists probably don't have that, but you know I'm fortunate to have that. And honestly, the friendship's worth more than the song, but you also get good songs out of it. <laughs> No, oh, that's a phenomenal story. And I think most people, if they don't have that, strive for some level of that because there is something to be said for someone who will be honest, but, you know, has your back for any situation and, and kind of just automatically, you know, accepts you for who you are and wants the best for you and kind of ultimately like wants to help you get there. You know, most people aren't where they want to be. And so their job is then you're both kind of on a straight path to, you know, it's going to be bumpy, it's going to be rocky, whatever happens, happens. But, you know, I'm here for for anything. And there's something very beautiful and, and raw about those types of friendships. And that's very yeah. cool that you have that. Oh, yeah, I'm fortunate with that. And, and Luke has always been honest with me. I mean, he, you know, oh, awesome. He probably doesn't like 70% of my music. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, it might even be more. I asked him once, I'm like, how many songs, if I send, I was like, how many songs of mine do you really like? He was like, maybe one in five. It's like, okay. 
I was like, I can't do that for context because I'm tired of sending you songs that you hate on. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. All right. So to respect your time, I have five more questions for you. The first of which is if you had a book written about you, what would the title of the book be? Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I would say that. But... No, silicone boom. Silicone boom. There we go. A memoir, something like that. All right. All right. Um, no, you're fine. What's who or what has been the biggest influence besides Carl Sagan? Because we already touched on that one. But I'm just curious, like, what other influences have impacted your your music? Yeah, it's great. Great question. So you can't hear this in the record that I released, but Gillian Welch. Do you know Gillian Welch? Okay. I'll have to check her out then. Though. Yeah, you. She's awesome. Now, hear me out. So she doesn't sound anything like me, especially on this this last record that I just made. But Gillian Welch has had tr tremendous influence on me. I discovered her in my early twenties. She writes Appalachian style music in a way, and she's really good at it. And of course, I grew up in Eastern Kentucky, so I had a natural drawing towards the Appalachian roots music. So Gillian Welch is also, she's extremely admired by songwriters. So she doesn't have a huge following. I mean, enough to make a living, right? She's got her own record company and all that. And she's very, she's very smart. She's very driven. And I met her once way back in the 20s. Um, because that was back when she was still pretty new and you could go to a concert and you could actually walk up and talk to her. You know? <laughs> but but she's, uh, she's considered by many songwriters to be you know, top tier and she's a great songwriter. So her, her work has always influenced me. Like I spent a lot of time with it in my early 20s and my, all the way up to my 30s. And then another songwriter that influenced me is Matthew Houck of Phosphorescent. So phosphorescent is definitely folk Americana as well. So I consider myself more folk Americana, even though my, the, the, the reaches doesn't really feel that way. It's the way I write is, is towards that genre. And Matthew Houck of phosphorescent has influenced me a lot. So I admire him a lot, really. <laughs> and I don't know if you know phosphorescent, but they have a very, very popular song called Song for Zula. As soon as you click on it, you're going to love it. I might know what that is, actually. The yeah. name sounds very familiar. So well known. It was kind of his breakout song, but I've been following him since 2008 because, he, well, okay, his record Pride, right? So I didn't even know because I didn't grow up with any kind of language for this kind of stuff. I didn't know what a concept album was. So in 2008, I stumbled on his record Pride, and he had written and produced and played all the instruments on it. And it's incredibly poetic. Uh, it's an incredibly poetic record. And I fell in love with that record. And 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 I the same thing that that happened with Gillian Welch was so when I discovered Gillian Welch and I listened to Time the Revelator, it's Time, comma, the Revelator. I would tell my friends, Oh, this record's so awesome. It's like a long poem. Right? They're like, What do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. It's just like I'm I'm like writing the river of a long poem. I get to write it all <laughs> the way downstream, right? It was so awesome for me. 
And then I felt the same way with pride. I was like, it's like a long, it's like a world to itself. It's, 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 a, it's a, an entire theme, right? Well, it was years later, I realized what a concept album was. And I realized, oh, I love concept albums because Time the Revelator, a long poem is kind of like a concept album. And then certainly pride is. So yeah, those two artists have influenced me. And if I, you know, as many records I ever make, they're all going to be concept albums. Because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not interested in, in I'm, I'm interested in works of art. Let's put it that way. I don't want to criticize anything else, but I'm personally interested in works of art. And so to me, concept albums are, are, are high. Well, I mean, the recent release of Brandon Flowers, The Killers, right? Which is called Pressure Machine, I think. It's a concept album. It's brilliant. It's a, it's a work of art. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Like, <laughs> I was blown away. Wow. Bye. All right. Lots to check out there. Then I'll be sure to. Well, no, no, no. That was awesome. That kind of, I mean, it goes into also like what you're trying to do with your music and how you kind of fully encompass what it is you're doing when you're creating albums. Like you're telling, you're telling stories, but they're all, there's a common theme and there's something that they're all about, which I think is a very interesting and like, I don't know, because like mainstream music doesn't seem to do that as much. And so when there is something that, that is a concept album and, and has a bigger theme and topic that it's talking about, it kind of makes you stop and think about what it is they're trying to say and, and how you kind of fit in or yeah, where you want it to be the story. Well, and I think, I mean, for me, like when, like with pressure machine from the killers, I start listening and I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting at the feet of a master, right? I could just be like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm at the feet of a master. What, what they've just created is going to stand the test of time. It's, it's like, it's like listening to Walt, Whitman it's it's brilliant right it has beauty in it it has vision in it it has love for humanity in it it has compassion as well as challenging and so yeah that's a work of art like I that's what I want and I'd much prefer to go in that direction I would I I'm not as good as that but at the same time you know Brandon Flowers has been doing this for 20 years and that's all he does he gets up every day and does this and so I try not to compare myself. I, you know, I don't have the, the amount of time that he has to devote to it. So I do the best I can. And it's not, you know, what I'm doing isn't bad. Obviously, I wouldn't be talking to you if it were horrible. <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah, I'd say you're doing pretty good. I'd say keep it up. And I'm excited to see what else comes about from it. All right. So my three final questions for you. The first of which is, if you had 24 hours to live, unlimited money, and could travel anywhere at the snap of your fingers with whoever you wanted, what would you do? Well, I would take my family, my wife and three kids, and my siblings, if they'd be willing to go, and take a couple of my friends, if they'd be willing to go. And we'd probably just go to Eastern Kentucky or somewhere in a cabin, like a really nice cabin, like super, super nice. And then we would hike, or maybe we would ride a side by side and go on an adventure but that would be it i'd be happy doing that awesome i like that that sounds pretty good to me the next one is would your younger self so at 8 10 12 would he be happy with where you are now and what you're doing probably not yeah probably not I mean, i'm trying to think like i certainly had i certainly had certain religious notions at the time that i'm not 
fulfilling in the vision that I had then. Now my religious notions are different and I feel like I'm fulfilling them in a, in a satisfactory way. But my 12 year old self wouldn't have thought that and definitely not my eight year old self. And then also, I guess parts of them would be surprised, you know, like they'd be like, well, you made a record and it sounds kind of cool. You know? <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah. I think that's that's always interesting to ask people that because you never quite know what's kind of lurking around. So the last one is, what do you want to accomplish either personally, professionally, and or both in the next six to 12 months? Okay. Yeah, sure. We're building a house. I'd like to build a house that my wife wants and kids need and I need a barn and my kids <laughs> want horses and I'd like to be able to do all that for them. My kids are little. They're 10, 6, and 2. And they want horses. They want horses. So All I would right. like to do that uh, in the next 6 to 12 months. We're, we're just getting started, like in the next week. <laughs> what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to do with your life? understandably a tough question for any 20-something to answer. So join me, your host, Taylor Marks of the Rise Year podcast, as I talk with some cool people about what they do and occasionally go on long rants of my own about the pains of growing up. I'm Silicon Boone and I'm an artist who I just I write songs, really. And I've been writing songs my entire life since I was very young. And, and song songwriting for me, or just songs, not even if I wrote them, but good songs for me have always been like, kind of like a, like oxygen. It's, it's the way that I find life. You know, it's the way that just navigate the world. Like even when I was really young and in, in like my late teens or early twenties, I would write songs based off of experiences that I had or whatever. And I thought this was normal. Like I didn't, because I grew up so secluded socially i had a lot of siblings but we were all very secluded which i'll get to in a second i thought it was normal and it took me a long time to realize that actually it's not quite most people don't do that and you know it i was way into my 30s before i even thought i might have something that i could offer people in that way where, where i first began to have some confidence with it and then i decided to make a space record which we can talk about and I approached this record with immense passion, as much passion as I've ever had in my life about anything. And even as I say that, I can feel it because I felt like I was doing something that needed to be done and should be done and something I believed in. And so I poured everything I had into it, including financially. I poured everything that I could that my wife allowed me to pour into it. And, and I'm very happy with the product, but I suppose that's why we're talking. Now I can take <laughs> Back history of, of myself, if you want to hear some of that, like the Amish background and all that. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so you want to ask me a question? Let me just start. We'll just start kind of, I mean, that's important to your upbringing. And like, so one of the things actually, I will say, what I thought was interesting, I found you somehow that people do on Spotify one day. And so I have a tendency, if I like the artist, I'll read their bio. Sometimes, you know, there's like, four words in there sometimes you know there's like a full description and and yours kind of caught me off guard because you know here 
here you are like you have this phenomenal kind of kind of rusty um americana voice and your songs especially found you which is your most popular is just very powerful and it kind of caught me off guard a little bit and reading this and it's ex amish and you're talking about all these other things about your upbringing and I, and then so i clicked your link went to your web you know your emails there and i figured i'd give it a shot because i figured you'd have a pretty cool story of having this super interesting upbringing to where you are now and and how that kind of translates into your music and what else that you've done kind of surrounding that so yeah if you want to just talk about your upbringing and everything like that that'd be awesome I will. And then just feel free to interject or ask a question or interrupt me even if, <laughs> if you think there's something we should. So yeah, I was born what's called Old Order Amish, which is, you know, in any religion, there's there's going to be a swath of different expressions. Well, within the Amish, there are more modern Amish, and then there are more conservative Amish, and the Old Order are the most conservative branch. And so I grew up on the far conservative side, or, or I didn't say I, I didn't grow all the way up, but started growing up there. And my parents left when I was in mid childhood, actually, right as I was starting first grade, they left. And but I have very, very vivid memories of being a, an Amish boy. I was a third born of six children. And I didn't learn English until after we left um, the Amish. So I learned English while I was in public school, which was very traumatic, actually. I, it was kind of way to transfer, but my parents didn't know any better. So they, they just didn't know that maybe I needed a more gentler transit because I, I went from uh, an Amish world into a public school setting, which was just stark and scary and, and wild because I couldn't speak English, which of course, you know, as a, as a kid, you learn a language pretty quick. But I was learning much more than a language. I was also learning a new way of thinking and seeing the world. So it was it was quite the contrast. But yeah, we left when I was six and a half, uh, right around Christmas time. And, you know, my parents had religious reasons for leaving. And so a lot of a lot of the religious emphasis remained in the home, which included for the rest of my childhood and teen years, uh, no contemporary music. You know, they felt that that was the devil's music, which may sound odd to you. But if you're if you're from a religious tradition, especially a conservative one, it's not uncommon. It's an us versus them often or they over there and we're over here kind of thing. And certainly the Amish are very much that way. Now, they're kind people and they're humble people and they're extremely honest. Like the vast majority of the Amish are nonviolent. Well, they're just never violent. They're anti-war. And they're extremely honest. They're not going to cheat you. They're not going to lie to you. So there's a lot of good, but then there's also some negative. And that is in, in the Amish, there's a strong patriarchy. The men make all the decisions and the women have their world where they do rule, but it's a much smaller world. You know, their sphere is very small. And, but w within the Amish, they have a very stark us versus them kind of mentality. And they'll call it the world, the Velt in the Pennsylvania Dutch is what it is, the Velt. And it's basically the world is everybody else out there. And then we are the chosen. And so growing up, we didn't entirely forsake that way of thinking. So, you know, we, we had our own way of secluding ourselves. And I don't think it was ever intentional, but it was part of that was cultural. And then we moved to Eastern Kentucky 
in the mountains, literally in the mountains, where the closest neighbor was a mile away. And so, which was in some ways pretty awesome because like we had five boys in our family and only one girl, <laughs> the kids, right? <laughs> and so we could just go outside in our underwear anytime we wanted to and run around and just be wild. And we were, we were just, and we were all close together. We're stacked like within a year and a half to two years apart in terms of birth order. And we were crazy. And we grew up barefoot in the hills and had a lot of fun, but we're also very different. So when we did interact with people at, at public school or when we would go to church, we would definitely stand out, you know? And, but in terms of music, my parents were given a piano when I was 11 hmm. and we had no TV. I mean, we had a TV box, but we had nothing coming in on it, right? <laughs> so the only way to watch it, the only way that thing would light up is if we would rent a VCR, which was heavily regulated as well, you know, no rated R, nothing like that. And, and we didn't go to the video store very often. I mean, like not just almost never. So we were basically had no TV. We did have a radio, but we weren't allowed to listen to anything except NPR, which was ironically kind of a, in some ways more of a, an access to the wider world than, than what just pop radio would have been. Uh, because I listened to a lot of NPR growing up. And, but anyway, when I was 11, my parents were given a piano and it was a very old piano. And because we had no uh, way to entertain ourselves besides playing outside, I started playing piano. And I loved the way it made me feel. So I started, just started writing music. You know, at first I just wrote melodies. I learned what chords were, kind of figured out. I remember when I started figuring out how melodies would play with chords and I was like, oh, wow. Are so you teaching started, yourself how well, to play yeah, the piano? Basically. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have anybody around. But, you know, I remember when 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 the three-shaped chords on the left hand, when I realized what those were. I don't know if you know music at all. I don't even know the language for it right now. But you know, if you hit the three the three notes, the one, the, the, one, the three, and the five, right? Mm -hmm. You make a certain sound. And then, but anyway, I started writing melodies. And then it wasn't until I was probably 16, I started messing with lyrics. And because I had such a a tight exposure to music, like very, very contracted exposure. So it was like church hymns, which aren't bad lyrically. A lot of them are actually fairly sophisticated lyrically in terms of their rhyme scheme and their poetry. But outside of that, the only other music I had any genuine access to was the Thistle and Shamrock, which was on NPR, which is old Celtic and Irish Celtic music, which is actually pretty sophisticated music as well, but it's old, right? And so initially my lyrics were very romantic and, and probably a little bit cliche. I mean, I had no Bob Dylan in my head. I had no Bruce. <laughs> we'll get back to the music in a second, but I am curious. So your parents left and y'all moved to Eastern Kentucky and it's this whole new world that you all are trying to figure out how to, to navigate essentially. What was expected when you left high school and were kind of thrust out into the world? Like, was it expected that you go to college or get a job? Because like, you know, y'all, your family has, I mean, you're essentially like immigrants. Actually, I appreciate you using that. That's very true because I will tell you this. So as an aside, when I was, okay, this is a crazy story, but it's a true one. So when my brother, my older brother, David, it was I, I used to think it was fifth grade, but then I talked to mom, I think it was ninth, seventh grade. 
When he was in seventh grade, he, he drew a penis on his homework. <laughs> just like boys, right? But my mom was just, just absolutely scandalized. <laughs> and she sent David and then my older brother Isaac off to a boarding school, a Baptist boarding school, because she thought she was losing David to the devil. <laughs> and she thought a boarding school would fix this problem. <laughs> And then they, mom and dad, they had a lot of really great characteristics about them. And one was mom and dad, despite being very strict religious upbringing, never forced us to think a certain way. They, they let us ask questions. You know? Probably because they had grown up asking questions themselves. But anyway, mom and dad left, let me decide whether I wanted to go to this boarding school. So I went to this boarding school at the age of 14 and put me for two years. It was in deep eastern Kentucky, but it had people from all over the world, literally people from all over the world, uh, Muslim and Asian and South American and Ethiopian. And uh, anyway, after two years, I basically got this incredible exposure to, to the world in a full sense, not like pop music world. But in, I got this exposure to the broader world. And so, what was expected of me leaving the home, I don't know that I had tremendous expectations. Mom and dad would have supported me if I'd have chosen just to get a job. Or, and I did choose to go, though they had an opinion about what kind of college I'd go to. But, but yeah, they supported me either way. But there weren't really any expectations. Um, mom and dad's, both of their, uh, the extent of their education is eighth grade. But neither one of them are uncurious people. You know, they, they read and they, they have a natural curiosity. So it's not, it's not the, if you met them, you would never know. Hmm. So what did you study in college then? And like, what was your intention for what you wanted to do at that moment in time being, you know, 18 to, to 22? So, okay, I was a sophomore in high school. I had this amazing teacher changed my life. We had to write, and I didn't know anything about writing. I never I dabbled in visual art, but I'd never done any writing. And I went to college and I, and I majored in English. Okay. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I'm sorry. So you've been having trouble hearing me this whole time? No. So I got that part. I was just about to add. I got all the way up until I think you added like a note at the end. Could be yeah. wrong. But you were talking about your teacher and then you said, yeah, you majored in English, and then... Because I um, loved it. Yeah. And I had no plans, so I graduated, and I worked construction, and I literally swung the hammer, working for like $9 an hour. <laughs> Love it. And so what was your... Did you have any intentions of kind of post that, of how to mesh the two, or, you know, what your life was going to look like, or was it more of a... We'll take every day as it comes and, and figure it out from there. Not really, but during that time, well, no, I will say I got fired from a job. It's the only job I've ever been fired from, which was absurd because I'm such a hard worker and I'm an honest person. Listen to the listen to this. Now, this is just this has nothing to do with anything, but it's so <laughs> interesting. I worked for this company, a construction company, this commercial construction that this this guy I barely knew was like, hey, come work with me. I've got this, I'm a, I'm a foreman at this construction company. So I go work. Well, he cheats on the hours, like 
he starts cheating on the hours. He starts paying us both me and him more than we were supposed to be getting. Right. And I was like, I wasn't ready to throw him under the bus, but I felt bad about it. Well, he doesn't last no more than a couple of months, maybe three months. And he quits and goes somewhere else and makes way more money. He was very intelligent. Like he's a super intelligent guy and driven. I call up the boss as soon as he's gone. And I say, Hey, I owe you some money. This is how much I owe you. I get figures, you know? And the guy was like, what? Cause this was like, anyway, it was construction, but it was like, you know, the guys were making pedophile jokes. It was like rough. It was rough right. stuff. Right. And so like I pay him his money back. And then half a year later I go into his office and I'm like, look, I'm, I'm working hard out here and I'm pretty good at what I do. You know, some guys are better than me, but I'm pretty good. But I, and I said, I'm educated and I'm intelligent and I bet I could do way better in your office. Do you have anything in your office where I could work and use my brain and not just my body? And he was like, sure, come back tomorrow and I'll <laughs> tell you what I have for you. I come back in the morning and he fires me. And he <laughs> loves firing me. He uses the word terminated and he like slides, he slides his like closed envelope with my check across the desk as he says it and grins at me. He's like, you're terminated. And I'm thinking this guy fired me who was honest with him and paid him money back. Right? <laughs> Joker does that. <laughs> anyway, I walked out of there like feeling happy, which meant that I wasn't supposed to be doing that. And I like, I was overjoyed actually. And I started working for myself. And I started just painting, being a painting contractor and started, and I, and I enjoyed that. But during that time, I read Carl Sagan and, and that I think might be more relevant for the music that I've made is that I read Carl Sagan. I would have been early twenties and I don't, do you know anything about Carl Sagan? I know the name, but I don't really know, know okay, much. Astronomer who died of cancer too early. I think he was in his fifties or early sixties when he passed away. He was an atheist astronomer with a incredibly like incredible gift for poetic expression and he had a brilliant vision for humanity as a whole and when you read Sagan he he feels religious in some ways even though he's an atheist because of of how optimistic and how persuasive he is with his language like I can read Nietzsche and be like okay Nietzsche feels like an atheist <laughs> are you familiar with Nietzsche at all yeah a little bit okay so when I read Nietzsche, he feels like an atheist, which maybe you're an atheist and I'm not trying to judge or anything like that. I don't care about that. But when, but when I would read Sagan, I'd be like, ah, he doesn't feel like an atheist at all, even though he was, right? So the reason I point that out is because, you know, with, with my background, I'd been taught to steer clear of atheists at the time, early 20s, you know. But once I started reading Sagan, I couldn't stop. And he was he was so influential for me that he, he changed the way I see the world, like his outlook on the world as an early in, in my early 20s, effective in changing the way that I thought or approached my life. So from that, I started writing songs about space, hmm. you know, from Sagan. Now, I kept writing all sorts of other songs, but eventually coming to the record, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. I'm beginning to actually think or I'm in mid to late 30s. And I'm beginning to actually think, you know, I could, I could make a record and, and people might actually like my music. And so I was like, I'm going to make a space record. And I talked to a couple of friends and they were like super encouraging and they were like, we'll play on it. We'll help you with it. And so I made, I just made the decision. I talked to my wife and talked to a couple of friends and I was like, I want to do this. And then I made I made the reaches 
which is the, you know, that has the song found you on it that has, has done exceptionally well considering that I'm not, you know, I'm nobody. <laughs> I'm nobody. Well, I'm somebody. Real. Yeah. Right. But if you, if you make a record and you release it into the world, you know, the chances of it doing anything at all is, is almost nothing unless, unless you have a big marketing like plan behind you, which I didn't have. So but it's done okay. I mean, the reaches have done all right. Yeah. What's the process like then from, you know, you're an unsigned artist, you're having friends come on and they're playing other instruments or singing vocals and doing all this other stuff to, to help you build it. Like, do you have all the equipment? Do you have to rent studio space? How did it all work? Oh yeah. So that's great. That's a great question. Well, fortunately I have both. I have access to my brother leads worship at a church that has a studio and, and their sound guys, like he flies around the nation setting up studio equipment and he's like the best and he's a genius. Like he's like the best. And uh, like most geniuses, a little bit eccentric, but once you get to, to know him, you love him. And he, so they let me use that because of my connections, they let me use that studio. And then also I've just accumulated some stuff myself, which you can't see me right now, but. I'm speaking into a mic and, you know, I have an interface here, Apollo 8 interface. And uh, I've been able to collect some gear over, over the years. Not that I know how to use it very well. But I have it <laughs> and so we actually ended up using some of my own studio space yeah, as well. Like for all the vocals and the acoustic guitars, we used my studio space. Okay. And how long did it take you to complete the album and put it out? Well, because I work, which I don't want to talk about like my occupation that much, but because I work full time and I have a business and have children, I couldn't just knock this thing out. I couldn't take off work and just go do it. So it took us from the time we recorded the first song to the time we released, we're looking at about two years, about two years. But what was amazing is the lead producer's name is John Class. He was from Anderson, Indiana, which is a suburb, I think, of Indianapolis or something like that, or it's close to. We've all, like, okay, so the band and I have always been good friends. So, like, my brother, Glenn, he's in the band. And then the drummer, Matt and all, he and I have been close for years. And then Patrick Schaffner, who played the bass, he and I have been close for years. So the lead producer, John Class, was the only one that we didn't know. But as fortune would have it, we like we're all cut from the same cloth and we're now lifelong friends in fact he was just up a couple of weeks ago we hung out drank a lot of beers one evening <laughs> and did a show together but like yeah great friendship has come out of making the record and what made you feel so passionately so from breathing carl sagan and kind of taking in all of that information that you had to then create something from what you took away from his words? Well, I don't know that I even know how to articulate other than what's in the record. Like, so, okay. When I try, I just try to do my best here and it's not going to, it's not going to do justice to, to Sagan. I mean, Sagan has had tremendous influence on a lot of people, not just me. Sagan had a rare gift of getting you to see and believe in and a beautiful potential, right? So that's why I say that he feels religious and I don't mean that in a critical way towards atheists. So I have no problem with atheists and I have friends, deep friends who are atheists. And I listen to a lot of 
podcasters who are atheists, right? So I have no issues with with that. I don't make even draw personal lines with it. But I don't generally find them inspiring in a in a hopeful, like almost like a religious hopeful way that I found Sagan to be, right? Now I don't know why that's the case, because Sagan himself wasn't trying to be that way. But he felt like a prophet. I mean, that's all I can say is like the dude felt like a prophet, right? He felt like he there was more going on with the things he was saying than just observation. He felt like he was calling humanity to a better place, to a new place, to a higher place, right? That's why it felt religious to me. And so because of that, he's incredibly inspirational. So if you read or listen to him, you'll see what I mean that his capacity to inspire you to want to do better, to live a better life, to see humanity as greater potential than what you might have thought of yesterday. So he has all those things going with him. So when I encountered him with that and combined it with space, um, I started like just in my own heart dreaming like, wow, it's possible that if we don't blow ourselves up with the bomb or in recent cases, kill ourselves with a pandemic, we might we will very likely end up in space, you know, end up out there somewhere that our descendants will like a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now. And what else is out there? Like, are there other life forms out there, which I assume there are, and is there intelligent life out there? And I assume there is like, and is it in the galaxy? Because, you know, we can't traverse from this galaxy to another galaxy without discovering some insane quantum mechanical way of doing it. I don't know, because there's there's not enough time to get over there. But I mean, even at the speed of light, we couldn't get there in how many billions of years. But we can definitely go across our own galaxy in, in the span of so many billions of years. And so it's possible that our descendants, if we don't kill ourselves, will end up going across the galaxy. I don't know. But these were all things that were on the tongue of Sagan. And I thought they were grandiose and I loved it. And so I found it inspiring. And I felt that at least as much as I could, I wanted to write a record or produce a record that paid homage to this grand view of what human potential is. (laughs) If that makes sense. Yeah, I'd say you did a fabulous job. I love the record. And yeah, I think each song is is different and kind of encompasses, you know, a different theme and topic, which is I'm assuming that's how you you built it. Yeah, yeah. And and I wanted I wanted each song to be about humanity as well. Right. So I didn't want it just to be about space. So I didn't just write a song about a planet. I wrote a song about like Mars, like a planet that reflects human nature which is violent, violent, uh, violent human nature and, and war and as well as the potential for terraforming, you know, planting and producing vegetation and that sort of thing. And so, so the, when, yeah, th- those themes are in that song Mars, right? Yeah. Okay. And when you're, when you're writing, you know, your songs, are you kind of focused on writing one at a time and you kind of go through and you have some lyrics and then you kind of figure out what the theme of it is and what the topic will be, or do, you know, you get flooded all at once or do you write in bits and pieces? I probably write mostly in bits and pieces. Sometimes I'm fortunate enough to to get a song in, in a very, very like, quick or fast way found you is one of those right those songs that come to you really fast bruce springsteen i remember he said he wrote dancing in the dark in like five minutes and i've heard i've heard other artists talk about those moments right where it's like 
you, like almost like some something out there is telling you is just pouring into you right and it's hard to explain until you have it because it really feels that way like it really feels like i'm channeling something from outside of me and it's just coming through me and i happen to be the lucky you know the conduit the lucky conduit for this for this moment so found you felt that way right and i did write it very quickly but these other songs no they took a while interesting that's what have you ever heard of elizabeth gilbert i don't think so maybe maybe she's she's an author and so she, one of her popular books is called big magic and she talks about one of the points actually just you know, reference about you being a vessel and, you know, sometimes it's about right time, right place. She mentions there's a story of this woman and she had this very exact idea for a book. You know, these characters were from X place and they were going to go to Brazil and, and do something. They were spies. And so she decided to kind of put it on hold. She had other things going on in her life and she happens to meet this woman on know, vacation or something. And this woman was also an author and she told her about this idea that she had for a book. And it was literally the same thing, except maybe like one or two minor things were tweaked as this other woman's idea that she had, you know, years before for a book. And it like, I always find that crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that might just be coincidence or there might be evidence that there's something more out there. Who knows? But <laughs> that's a crazy story for sure that is so do you have plans for creating another album or is it yeah I'm in, I'm in the process of writing so the, the the hold up for me right now is time and money honestly music doesn't pay unless you're really big and and then also i my my life is i'm, I'm middle-aged and i have little kids <laughs> and i have a business and my life is incredibly full but no i've got i'm working on a, on a record that i think i'm going to call western highway and it's going to basically deal with like 19th century American expansion westward both some of like the mythology because I love mythology and when I say mythology I don't mean like I mean myth mythos like what is it that drives a group of people towards something it's a mythology right it's a it's a common story so I I, I really appreciate some of the mythology that drove America westward but then there's also a lot of songs that deal honestly with with the excesses and critique, you know, critique some of the ex well, there there are tons of excesses. So I like I have a song for ja Sacagawea that that you know it's funny like the song I have for Sac uh, Sacagawea. I mean I don't know how many people would love it or not because it's more folk oriented, but which I actually prefer folk music over anything else, but like I was watching a Ken Burns film like so here's an example I told you I started off by saying that I process life with music right so I was watching you know who Ken Burns is the documentary guy mm -hmm. okay yeah so I was watching Ken Burns it's about the west I don't know it's like a six-part documentary or something and this is years ago <clears throat> and my wife and I were watching it and he starts telling the story of Sacagawea and I'm not a I'm not a crier like I I feel and I'm emotional and especially when I'm writing, I'm very emotional, but I don't cry a lot. So even when I'm watching films, I'll feel a lot, but I don't cry. Like I don't, I don't, my, my eyes don't get wet. So I'm just listening to his story on Sacagawea and I start crying. I'm like, this is awful. Like, like the, the misfortune, it's not even misfortune, the, the tragedy the, the, the complete tragedy that her story is, is just insane. Nobody, no human being should 
should be met with such tragedy that she was met with and such injustice. And I'm like, oh, I got to write this girl a story. I got to write her a song, you know? And then I finally did. I finally wrote her a song like a year and a half ago or a year ago or whatever. But I sat on that for a long time because I wanted the song to be right, right? I sat on it and sat on it. I was like, I'm not going to just sit down and force it. I want the song to come to me. I don't want to come to it. So, but anyway, I have a song for her. Then I have like all these other songs too. I have a song about Abraham Lincoln's assassination, but that'll be my, I think that'll be my next record. And I've got most of the songs completed. I'm still writing on it. I had one completely written that I completely chucked and I got to rewrite it. Cause it just, <laughs> the band and I played with it, played with it. And then at the end we were like, this isn't working. So I've got to rewrite that one. <laughs> rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, I think oh, wow. so. It just didn't work. It didn't huh. work. Is it like a, it's not ready, so you like maybe keep it later or it's just completely like it doesn't fit with the rest of the album and, and like what you're trying to say? I don't know. No, it's, 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 it's great. The, the lyrics are great. The lyrics are great. I have no qualms with the lyrics. It just didn't work. It just, <laughs> honestly, we, so we did a show like a month ago. It was an outside show. And we had like 14 or 15 songs ready to go. And every time we'd rehearse and come to that one song, I'd be like, ah, I just don't want to, it's just boring, right? And the band would kind of feel the same way. And then finally I was like, guys, just be honest with me. And then, you know, Matt, the drummer, who doesn't mind being honest, he was like, yeah, I just, <laughs> I just don't think this song is ready. I don't think it works. And I'm like, well, if it's not ready now, it's never going to be ready. I'm just getting rid of it. <laughs> well, free spot for something else. And that's interesting to... Well, I want to still write that song because the yeah. lyrics and concepts are strong, but I need, I obviously need a better melody or a hook or something. I don't know what it was, but it didn't work. And interestingly, the Abraham Lincoln song that felt really odd and out of left field to me ended up working great as a full band, you know? So you just never know. You just never know what you're going to run into, I guess. Is your music more for you or is it for others? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, it was certainly more for me younger, right? But now as I'm writing, I'm trying to have more of a thought towards others as well. But there was a time when I would only ever write for me. And I, and I kind of miss those days in some ways, you know, if I'm honest, because it felt very private and genuine and sweet, you know. Were you sharing those songs like you're sharing these now or were those just oh, yeah. kept? Okay. No, no, I would share them. I've always shared songs with friends. Which I actually think if I don't know if, if you have I don't know how, how many listeners you have, but if there's any artists out there, especially if they're young, they're songwriters, I would say that's one of the most important things you can do is create a group of friends that you love and who love you. And I use the word love, right? I'm not afraid to use that word. People who actually love you. They're not competing with you. They they like you. Let's let's use that word too. They don't just love you, they like you, right? And you feel that way towards them and you guys can trade music because what's going to happen is if you're an artist and you've got people that, that love and like you, they're going to be honest with you and they're going to celebrate you when you're, when you're hitting a home run. And then when they celebrate you, you're like, Oh, I hit a home run. Cause you don't know as an artist, you don't know that you hit a home run. Right. You're just like, uh, cause you might write five songs and they more or less to you, they all feel about the same, but 
but then you've got some friends who are like, no, man, this one over here, this is incredible, right? But the, these three are good, and this one's not that good, right? And you need that. Like, you need that in order to grow because you can't, you can't see, you know, you can't always have eyes to see what you create, you know? Did you seek those people out, or did it kind of happen naturally through environments and circumstances? I would have to say the second. Yeah, I can't, I, I can't take credit for that. <laughs> I mean, certainly, I think we, you know, you, certainly you, you make decisions not to run them away, right? I wonder how many times maybe we come across people like that and we don't realize it and we don't invest and they don't invest and then there's a lost potential friendship we could have had, but we're just too busy or, you know, we're too this or too distracted or maybe we're, our feelings get hurt too easy or, you know, there's a number of things that could, could happen. But I've certainly chosen to overlook offenses and i'm glad i did because when you're 20 or 25 you're offending a lot and they're offending you a lot i mean it just comes with the territory. Yeah. i think there's also yeah go ahead i was gonna say i think there's also like the initial friction you know sometimes when you're when you're meeting people and your schedules don't align like you said you're busy but also just it is harder to make time for someone who maybe you've met once or twice versus something else in life that comes up it's like you don't quite know them enough and have that same type of pull and like want to hang out as like a friend you've had since like middle school or high school no that's true and 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 it might be easier for me to say this because i'm in a small town right so all this happened in a small town mm. so you have a small town unlike the city which i lived in the city for five years i freaking loved it I thought it was awesome i miss it but I, I, I can't see me developing friendships in a city like I was able to in a small town, right? Because in a small town, you don't have a whole lot to do. And so you invest in people and people invest in you. It just comes, right? It's kind of, it's what happens. And so, yeah. So in these, like, I still remember, this is an interesting story of like one of my best friends who I've definitely in terms of music has been the most influential on me in terms of friends. His name's Luke. He's from South Africa. He's a white South African. He moved to the States. He immigrated here when he was, when he came here for education. And I was in Peru and I was dating my wife at the time. She was not my wife, obviously, because we were dating. And she had a group of friends over and I'm on the phone talking to her. And she says, here, Luke wants to say something. I never met Luke, right? So Luke jumps on the phone. He's like, Sam. And he uses this like, his accent is just like out of this world. He's like, you're a legend, boo, you're a legend. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the first thing he says to me. And I'm like, what, well, you know, who is this? And he's like, your brother's shown me a couple of your songs and they're so amazing, right? <laughs> and so I'm like, well, okay. So we start talking like just a minute or two and I realized right away, I'm like, oh, I really like this guy. Like, I want to be friends with this guy. And so we start like emailing. Like, this is back in 2004 or five or something like that. It was a long time ago. And so, you know, you didn't have like texting and all that. And so we like start emailing and trading songs. And he and I are still trading songs. <laughs> And he's, re he's currently releasing his own little record, right? And my point is this, that I, I don't know, that friendship came to me, but I also saw it when it came, right? 
I saw this guy was interesting and, and he was he liked me and he loved me and he was gonna be honest with me and I liked him and it was like you know, we've been trading songs ever since and uh, and we've we've grown we've grown better in the process of like every song I've ever written I think I send to Luke and I think he probably does nearly the same right so that's a precious thing to have i'm sure most artists probably don't have that but you know i'm fortunate to have that and honestly the friendship's worth more than the song but you also get good songs out of it <laughs> no that's a phenomenal story and i think most people if they don't have that strive for some level of that because there is something to be said for someone who will be honest but you know has your back for any situation and and kind of just automatically, you know, accepts you for who you are and wants the best for you and kind of ultimately like wants to help you get there. You know, most people aren't where they want to be. And so their job is then you're both kind of on a straight path to, you know, it's going to be bumpy. It's going to be rocky. Whatever happens, happens. But, you know, I'm here for for anything. And there's something very beautiful and, and raw about those types of friendships. And that's very yeah. cool that you have that. Oh, yeah, I'm fortunate with that. And, and Luke has always been honest with me. And, uh, you know, oh, awesome. He, he probably doesn't like 70% of my music. <laughs> I'm not, I mean, it might even be more. I asked him once, I'm like, how many songs, if I send, I was like, how many songs of mine do you really like? He was like, maybe one in five. It's like, okay. I was like, I can do that for context because I'm tired of sending you songs that you hate on. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Wow. That's very cool. All right. So to respect your time, I have five more questions for you. The first of which is if you had a book written about you, what would the title of the book be? Oh, I have no idea. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I would say that. But... <laughs> there we go a memoir something like that all right all right um no you're fine what's who or what has been the biggest influence besides carl sagan because we already touched on that one but i'm just curious like what other influences have impacted your your music yeah it's great great question so you can't hear this in the record that I released, but Gillian Welch, do you know Gillian Welch? Mm -mm. Okay. I'll have to check her out then. Though. Yeah, you'll, she's awesome. Now, hear me out. So she doesn't sound anything like me, especially on this this last record that I just made. But Gillian Welch has had tr tremendous influence on me. I discovered her in my early twenties. She writes Appalachian style music in a way and she's really good at it and of course i grew up in eastern kentucky so i had a natural drawing towards the appalachian roots music so gillian welch is also she's extremely admired by songwriters so she doesn't have a huge following i mean enough to make a living right she's got her own record company and all that and she's very she's very smart she's very driven and i met her once way back in the 20s um, because that was back when she was still pretty new and you could go to a concert and you could actually walk up and talk to her you know <laughs> but, but she's uh, she's considered by many songwriters to be you know top tier and she's a great songwriter 
So her her work has always influenced me. Like I spent a lot of time with it in my early 20s and my all the way up to my 30s. And then another songwriter that influenced me is Matthew Houck of Phosphorescent. So Phosphorescent is definitely folk Americana as well. So I consider myself more folk Americana, even though my the 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 reaches doesn't really feel that way. It's the way I write is is towards that genre. And Matthew Hauck of Phosphorescent has influenced me a lot. So I admire him a lot, really. <laughs> and I don't know if you know Phosphorescent, but they have a very, very popular song called Song for Zula. As soon as you click on it, you're going to love it. I might From- know what that is, actually. The yeah. name sounds very familiar. So well known. It was kind of his breakout song, but I've been following him since 2008 because, he, well, okay, his record Pride, right? So I didn't even know, because I didn't grow up with any kind of language for this kind of stuff. I didn't know what a concept album was. So in 2008, I stumbled on his record, Pride. And he had written and produced and played all the instruments on it. And it's incredibly poetic. Uh, It's an incredibly poetic record. And I fell in love with that record. And and I the same thing that that happened with Gillian Welch was, so when I discovered Gillian Welch, and I listened to Time, The Revelator. It's Time, comma, The Revelator. I would tell my friends, oh, this record's so awesome. It's like a long poem, right? They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, I don't know. It's just like I'm I'm like riding the river of a long poem. I get to ride it all <laughs> the way downstream, right? It was so awesome for me. And then I felt the same way with Pride. I was like, it's like a long, it's like a world to itself. It's, 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 a, it's a, an entire theme, right? Well, was years later I realized what a concept album was and I realized oh I love concept albums because time the revelator a long poem is kind of like a concept album and it certainly pride is so yeah those two artists have influenced me and if I you know as many records I ever make they're all going to be concept albums because I'm not <laughs> I'm not interested in in I'm, I'm interested in works of art let's put it that way I don't want to criticize anything else but I'm personally interested in works of art and so to me, concept albums are, are, are high. Well, I mean, the recent release of Brandon Flowers, The Killers, right? Which is called Pressure Machine, I think. It's a concept album. It's brilliant. It's a, it's a work of art. It's, it's absolutely amazing. Like, I was blown away. Wow. By it. All right. Lots to check out there. Then I'll be sure to. Well, awesome. no, no, no. That was awesome. That kind of, I mean, it goes into also like what you're trying to do with your music and how you kind of fully encompass what it is you're doing when you're creating albums. Like you're telling, you're telling stories, but they're all, there's a common theme and there's something that they're all about, which I think is a very interesting. And like, I don't know, cause like mainstream music doesn't seem to do that as much. And so when there is something that, that is a concept album and, and has a bigger theme and topic that it's talking about, it kind of makes you stop and think about, what it is they're trying to say and, and how you kind of fit in or yeah where you want it to be the story. Well, and I think, I mean, for me, like when, like with pressure machine from the killers, I start listening and I'm like, I'm, I'm sitting at the feet of a master, right? I could just be like, Oh my God, I'm, I'm at the feet of a master. What, what they've just created is going to stand the test of time. It's, it's like, it's like listening to Walt, Whitman it's it's brilliant right it has beauty in it it has vision in it it has love for humanity in it it has compassion 
as well as challenging. And so, yeah, that's a work of art. Like I, that's what I want. And I'd much prefer to go in that direction. I w- I, I'm not as good as that, but at the same time, you know, Brandon Flowers has been doing this for 20 years and that's all he does. He gets up every day and does this. And so I try not to compare myself. I, you know, I don't have the, the amount of time that he has to devote to it. So I do the best I can. And it's not, you know, what I'm doing isn't bad. Obviously, I wouldn't be talking to you if it were horrible. <laughs> Obviously not. Yeah, I'd say you're doing pretty good. I'd say keep it up. And I'm excited to see what else comes about from it. All right. So my three final questions for you, the first of which is, if you had 24 hours to live, unlimited money and could travel anywhere at the snap of your fingers with whoever you wanted, what would you do? Well, I would take my family, my wife and three kids and my siblings, if they'd be willing to go and take a couple of my friends if they'd be willing to go. And we'd probably just go to Eastern Kentucky or somewhere in a cabin, like a really nice cabin, like super, super nice. And then we would hike, or maybe we would ride a side by side and go on an adventure, but that would be it. I'd be happy doing that. Awesome. I like that. That sounds pretty good to me. The next one is, would your younger self, so at eight, 10, 12, would he be happy with where you are now and what you're doing? Probably not. Yeah, probably not. I mean, I'm trying to think like, I certainly had, I certainly had certain religious notions at the time that I'm not fulfilling in the vision that I had then. Now my religious notions are different and I feel like I'm fulfilling them in a, in a satisfactory way, but my 12 year old self wouldn't have thought that and definitely not my eight year old self. And then also, I guess parts of them would be surprised, you know, like, They'd be like, well, you made a record and it sounds kind of cool, you know? <laughs> kind of cool. Yeah. Huh? I think that's, that's always interesting to ask people that because you never quite know what's kind of lurking around. So the last one is, what do you want to accomplish either personally, professionally, and or both in the next six to 12 months? Okay. Yeah, sure. We're building a house. I'd like to build a house that my wife wants and kids need and I need a barn and my kids want horses and I'd like to be able to do all that for them. My kids are little. They're 10, 6, and 2. And they want horses. They want horses. So all I would right. like to do that uh, in the next 6 to 12 months. We're, we're just getting started like in the next week. My parents were given a piano when I was 11. Hmm. And we had no TV. I mean, we had a TV box, but we had nothing coming in on it, right? <laughs> so the only way to watch, the only way that thing would light up is if we would rent a VCR, which was heavily regulated as well. You know, no rated R, nothing like that. And, and we didn't go to the video store very often. I mean, like, not, just almost never. So we were, basically had no TV. We did have a radio. But we weren't allowed to listen to anything except NPR, which was ironically kind of, a, in some ways, more of a, an access to the wider world than, than what just pop radio would have been. Uh, because I listened to a lot of NPR growing up. And, but anyway, when I was 11, my parents were given a piano. It was a very old piano. And because we had no way to entertain ourselves besides playing outside, I started playing piano. 
and I love the way it made me feel. Mm-hmm.